Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. Let's get it going. It's David Summers and it's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. Here comes the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, we step back into the ring, back into time. We get wall to wall, treetop tall. With the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. All right, so I notice you got already got your napkin stuck into the top of your shirt, and you're sitting there with a fork in one hand and a knife in the other. Is that true? Yeah, stuff? man, I'm thinking about it. That's <laughs> Ready yeah. to make that move for Thanksgiving. All right, so do you, do you, you going to be having the traditional meal? Yeah, man. I think, uh, yeah, we're going to do this. Do, do it all, a little, little bit of dressing. Uh, got a 20-pound turkey. uh you know, and, and there's not a whole bunch of us, so it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be good, man. I'll be, uh, I'll be uh, putting on a little weight in the next few days, <laughs> and catching an extra nap or two, maybe. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> yeah, that's, a good that's that's a cool deal. Is it is it is it special for you spending Thanksgiving in a beautiful place like the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee? Yeah, man. You know, I mean, it's been a quite been a while. A lot of years I spent. Uh, down on uh, in Florida, so you know, being back up here is a, uh, it's 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 really uh feels like Thanksgiving up here. You know, it's a little cool, but it's not too bad. Uh, got a little rain, but but uh, it's a, uh, it's pretty. It's gonna it's gonna be a nice Thanksgiving. Oh, that's cool. You know, we had a burn ban in the state of Alabama for a, a few weeks, actually. I think, and they they dropped that. We had a we had a soaking that we we had been waiting for for quite a while. So. So yeah, we had, a, we had a fire yeah. here yesterday on I-40, man. Uh, oh, wow. At the, at the line, uh, the Tennessee-North Carolina line, uh, which is about uh, 30 miles, 40 miles from us. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, we had had a fire there that uh, it, it burned for a couple of days. Wow. We had some rain that put it out, thank goodness. Yeah, well, that part of it, the, the burn ban is over for us because we got a gully washer, and, man, it just, I thought it was not going to stop a couple of nights ago, but. All right, listen, Stud, let's get this thing underway. Your last Studcast, number 325, was all about Thanksgiving night, 1979. It started with your last match against Sterling Golden, the Georgia promoters version of the Hulk. That's what that's what Jim Barnett named him. All right, but he started in the business, of course, in the spring of 79 in your southeastern Gulf Coast territory. He was quickly making appearance appearances in the southern territories so what's going on with that well you know uh, he certainly was dave i mean uh he spent less than six months with us when he first started and uh and we were his first territory they ever worked uh, and then about uh then he left there and he spent about three months in the memphis territory uh but uh and then he he left there and went to georgia man so uh you know uh so, uh, and then uh, when we were together in Georgia there and I was wrestling that night, he said, I'm on my way to New York. I was thinking, <laughs> man, you, you're going to run through all the territories in the country, man, in real short period of time if you keep this up, <laughs> you know. But uh, so he was on his way to work for the WWF territory of Vince McMahon Sr. Yeah, that was a big mistake in the long run, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I think it was. And I mean, it, you know, I don't think uh, the senior was uh, near as happy with his performances yeah. as junior was. Later on, uh, junior, junior kind of fell in love with him. But yeah. 
don't think uh, Vince McMahon Sr. was uh, really thrilled with what he saw. Wow. All right. All right. So then you took us down south to Mobile, Alabama for the second Thanksgiving night show in 1979. Every one of your partners in southeastern Gulf Coast was there and working for the first time since its inception, except for you. That Mobile show was absolutely huge. I'm talking like 10,000 fans in a territory that was filling up with some really tremendous talent and looking ahead to the future. So I got to ask. Why were you not down there with them, Ron? What was going on? Well, you know, I'd sold my southeastern Knoxville territory, and uh, and and basically, I was in the process of moving, Dave. And uh, yeah, there's a process there, and it takes a little time. I'd been in Knoxville basically since October 1974, by far the longest period of time I had spent anywhere since I became a wrestler, and I'd accumulated some furniture and there's some uh, quite a few things here and there and it, and it was my first move basically in five years I'd stayed uh, I'd stayed after the sale longer than I even thought I would because I want to make sure everything was working well for the new Georgia owners before I left and and, and I wasn't planning on being back maybe ever mm. and certainly not as a promoter that was really pretty decent of you to just kind of stay stay behind just to make sure everything went great with the promoter. A lot of folks would have said, boom, you handed me the check. I'm out of here. So anyway, that makes sense though. So let's turn our attention to this stud cast. The title is called of this stud cast Armstrong versus Tanaka loser leaves. So many new wrestlers had arrived on the Gulf coast in the last three weeks. So why was it necessary to let go of either Bob Armstrong or Tora Tanaka? What was happening there? Well, that's a good question, you know. And uh, actually, it wasn't my choice, and it wasn't Rob's choice. He was a booker. Con- uh, Tanaka had contacted me a couple of weeks earlier, and he told me he had an offer from a larger territory that he had never worked in before and a territory he'd always wanted to go to. And he said he had uh, been with me uh, off and on basically for years, which was true at that point. And he said, Ron, I'll be back. You know, I want to come back. And, you know, and I think it could have had something to do with all this influx of talent that he was seeing coming. You know, he was maybe a little concerned about uh, what status that was going to put him in. But either way, you know, it wasn't going to hurt either one of us by him going and and taking a shot in the territory that he had had really wanted to be a part of. Mm. And uh, that's the way a lot of guys handle their business. So, uh, so we had so much going on at this point, man. With the, we had all these tape copies of these TVs uh, from Knoxville, these house show matches, and all these angles from Knoxville that we were about to start uh, using on the Gulf Coast televisions, and uh, and that was going to set business on fire. I really felt like, and uh, and uh, with uh, almost all of those, uh, uh, and very few of those films actually in those videos. We're about to knock them. Wow. Okay. So I see what you're saying, but because those videos were going to become backbone backstories to some future events that were going to be that you guys angles that you guys were going to be working on in the near future. So I can see that we're about to get into another great stud cast for sure on this one. So before we go any further in this one, at the end of the last one, I just thought of this earlier this morning. You said in this studcast, we would be discussing some private issues among the stockholders about the future and the next big step for Southeastern Gulf Coast, the newest, I guess you would say, the now newest territory. So can we start with that on the ride today? What, how are we setting it up? Yeah, man, I think uh, I think that's a great place to start. We don't usually talk about this type of thing, you know, I, and I think listeners will be very interested in this discussion. Uh, basically, it was the first between the five owners of the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory that we had had. Uh, and it, we were, you know, and this, we were at the end of uh, November 1979. So it was the first time all five of us were able to talk to each other at the same time since the company had began operation in March of 1978, almost two years earlier. So Robert and Bob and Jimmy and Roy, uh, they all met at Roy Lee's house. Uh, they were already all down there in Pensacola. And uh, Roy was the only one of us that had been there 
since that business had began down there, and he had purchased him home as and basically as soon after he could, after he got there as he could. And so I was still in Knoxville on a conference call with him, basically, and it was on a Monday, five days after almost this 10,000 fans filled that Mobile Municipal Auditorium's main arena, man. So we, we, we had just had an all-time best Gulf Coast week at that point. So business was very, very good. Uh, and obviously, everybody was in good spirits. So we started off uh, with, uh, with the present booker, with Rob. You know, uh, you know what? okay, Rob, but what, what are you looking at here? What are we going to be doing in the future? Mm-hmm. So how are things going? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I basically asked him, you know, where, where are we headed from here, man? And, uh, you know, as far as the booking is concerned. So his news was both good and bad. He was disappointed with the Stomper's son. Uh, he didn't think that uh, he was as far along as he should have been. And, uh, you know, and he also uh, was having a little uh, problem with uh, Greg Mephisto, Frankie Kane, who was the manager of that Mongolian team that were the champions. So Frankie Kane had never worked with Rob as a booker. And uh, he had a reputation, Frankie, as being somewhat difficult to work with anyway. Uh, so it wasn't uncommon for guys with lots of ideas that had been former bookers uh, but weren't presently booking, and that was uh, Frankie's situation. He had booked for a lot of people. He was a very sharp booker and a very sharp guy, you know, and he had his own ideas, and they had a tendency to believe the guys like that that things should be done differently, more like their thinking rather than the present booker's way of thinking sometimes. So I've never had a problem with Frankie. Uh, when he worked for me in Knoxville in 1976, the great Mephisto, but uh, I'd always been the owner there, and uh, and he respected that, and uh, and he was also uh, working uh, uh, under my under his good friend Louis Tillet back in those days in 1976, who was the Knoxville Booker, and Louis would just left that territory, this uh, southeastern territory now, as the Booker up there. So uh, Rob was young. Uh, Frankie was in his early 40s, and, uh, you know, I could understand how that was a problem, basically kind of for both of them, you know. Rob had all these creative ideas, Frankie had his own ideas, and, you know, and uh, and there was a little bit of a little bit of a buffer there between the two. And a bad attitude, especially from someone who had been a booker in other places, could quickly become a disaster. I got the perfect example of that, a guy <laughs> named Bob Root. Right. And I had no intention of ever going in that direction again. So, you know, so I told Rob, you know, I said, I don't have a problem, Bob. Rob, if, if you want to start looking for a replacement for, for Mephisto, you know, and uh, I said, it's not it's not going to be hard to find somebody, especially since the territory just set a new box office record. So in the case of the Stomper's son, we talked a little bit about that. I knew Archie. Archie Goldie, that was the Mongolian Stomper's real name. And uh, I knew that Archie would be the first to say that his son was not getting the job done. And uh, Rob and everybody else agreed Stomper was in no way going to let his son hurt business down there. You know, so that wasn't going to happen. So in about two months, this situation with Frankie Kane and the Stomper's son, it basically kind of resolved itself. So the next discussion was about purchasing homes in Pensacola. And we all agreed our future was down there, man, and there was no doubt about it at this point, and that the city, the city of Pensacola itself was absolutely beautiful, man. From the huge bay to the magnificent beach, man, <laughs> you can't get many pretty, pretty, prettier places than Pensacola. So, uh, and then Rob and Bob and Jimmy, they were all living in apartments and. uh, and Roy, he'd already, like I said, he'd already bought himself a house. So Bob told us during this discussion that he had never, you know, moved his family out of their home in Marietta, Georgia, in the 15 years since he'd been wrestling. And he had, on a few occasions, he told us that he had moved them into apartments with him in some of the territories. He went to Florida, I know. Uh, he worked other territories, uh, a little short, different, different lengths of time. But, uh, you know, he did. He had never brought them to Pensacola yet. So he asked, you know, he said, guys, uh, I want to go back home and I want to sell my home in Georgia 
And he says, I'm going to permanently move my family here. But he says, I really kind of need about three months at least to get that done. Uh-huh. You know, and, uh, you know, I need to find a home here. I got to get my house sold up there. I got to get moved, all of that. So, uh, so you know, that wasn't a that wasn't a bad thing to ask, and uh, you know, and it seemed reasonable to all of us. Wow! So I bet that had every one of you guys smiling like uh, Cheshire cats. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> you had a commitment from one of the best wrestlers in the world that he was going to be there and part of your company for good. To me, that's pretty amazing that you talk to your, I, I'm assuming this is just your main guys about let's all buy homes. That's, oh, yeah. that's a big yeah. decision, even in 1979. Oh yeah, man. I, it's always a big decision, you know? So, uh, and, and you're right. I couldn't, I couldn't think of anyone I would rather have had uh, be part of my company, uh, part of any wrestling company than Bob Armstrong. Mm. And, and, and I hadn't even considered uh, uh, neither None of the other guys that were on the phone either, how wonderful an addition his three sons were going to be <laughs> exactly. in, the five, in the next five years. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it. I hadn't even thought about that part of it. And like, wow, man, <laughs> the, you know, geez, he's not coming just Bob. He's going to bring all these boys that are going to be super talented. Yeah, he's going to bring the NWA Rookie of the Year, Brad. So Brad alone – I mean, how cool is that? Less than two years later, by the way, in 1981, I think is when that happened. But what about the next step for the future of Southeastern that you mentioned? What was that all about? Well, the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory basically covered from the panhandle, all of the panhandle of Florida, all of the southern half of the state of Alabama. Uh, it was an area just slightly larger than the Knoxville territory was, but the main difference between Knoxville and what was going on down there is Knoxville only had one major market, where the Gulf Coast had three. So for the first time, I brought up my thoughts on the expansion of the territory. Never talked to these guys about it, but I had thought about it for quite a bit. You know, Nick Goulas, uh, who was my grandfather's partner in, in the Tennessee territory for 40 years, at that point, we're talking about 1979, almost 1980, uh, he was in control of the three major cities. Uh, two, of the, two of those were in Tennessee, Nashville and Chattanooga. And uh, then he had that big house in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, man. Uh, Birmingham, great town. So uh, Nick's business was dying at this point in the 19, late 1970s, uh, going into nineteen eighty. Because he tried to take his son, George Goulas, and make a champion out of it. And uh, George had the absolutely no wrestling skill. I've heard so. you tell about him before, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. You know, it killed his territory. It killed Nick's town, you know. Wow. He pushed his son so hard. So I could almost hear, man, uh, their ears perk up over the phone, you know, because I asked him, you know, I said, uh, what, what do you guys think if uh, we – I think something's going to happen with Nick and he's going to want to sell his three major cities. And I said, what if we buy Birmingham and the rest of Alabama from him? Uh, and, and, and you all think it would be worth it to us. Well, <laughs> there was a dead silence on the phone, you know, for, <laughs> for about 30 seconds. I was like, well, heck, they don't like the idea. And then they all started talking to each other at once. Like, oh, man, are you kidding? Gosh, I love you. It was like wild. So uh, there was a little lively discussion there that ended with all of us agreeing that if we could make it happen before the end of 1980, which was just about one year away from this conversation mm-hmm. that we were going to not just uh, make an offer, but we were going to own Birmingham. We were going to buy Birmingham and be wrestling in Birmingham in the last than a year. Wow. Obviously the biggest city in the state of Alabama. What a great story, Ron. So I don't think we ever have ever had a, a real behind the scenes discussion like that before, like this. So no wonder these studcasts are so popular everywhere. You make wrestling history so much fun and so interesting as we relive these amazing moments. Speaking of interesting, how how about you tell us what was on the next Mobile, Alabama card 
I believe you guys were in Expo Hall Wednesday, November 28th, 1979. Yeah, we were back in the smaller building. Uh, we got the bigger one because it was a Thanksgiving night, and we were really lucky to get them to open that building for us on Thanksgiving. A lot of big buildings didn't like to run on Thanksgiving and Christmas those nights. So it was as good or even better than the Thanksgiving night card uh, and uh, that we had been there six days earlier in the big building. So again, the, there was four main events on this one, just like there was a Thanksgiving card. The opening match was Roy Lee Welch against another newcomer that was just coming in. Uh, I call himself the super pro, uh, and he was trying to make a name for himself, obviously off the reputation of the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter. <laughs> uh, so that's going to be an interesting situation. So, uh, then the big Canadian, Joe LaDuke, was facing off against Troy Graham. Then there was a 10-round boxing match. Uh, and, and the week before in the, in, the, uh, in the Thanksgiving show in the big building over there, uh, Rob and Jimmy had had a really bloody match. So they're coming back uh, in the 10-round boxing match. Norville Austin had captured the United States uh, junior – heavyweight championship the week before and was defending that belt in a return championship match against the former champion, Tony Charles. Uh, the Southeastern Tag Championship was on the line again as the champions, Mongolians, managed by the great Mephisto, were going to wrestle against Kevin Sullivan and Jerry Stubbs. This time, this was going to be a no disqualification match because they had, uh, they had uh, kept their belts by getting disqualified in the last time that they had wrestled. And then in the last main event, Bob Armstrong was putting on his belt again against Tor Tanaka. But this time, it was going to be no disqualification, and there must be a winner. And the winner was going to stay, be the champion, and the loser was going to be leaving Southeastern. Wow. So I think you were right, Stud, about this being just as good a card as the last one. I can't wait to find out what the wrestling pro Leon Baxter is going to think about someone stealing his name. I was such a huge, as a kid, man, this guy, uh, the wrestling pro Leon Baxter, he was, it just seemed like he was a superstar in that Houston County Farm Center back in the day when I was younger. And so anyway, it's amazing that you had him. This is a great place to take our break. Let's do that. And when we return, we're going to find out how the booker was going to get all of that talent in one TV show. Can you believe that? That's coming up next right here. Want a unique Christmas gift for yourself or someone else? Ron's fantastic novel, Brutus, has taken the world by storm. It has 62 reviews and a 4.5 rating out of a possible 5. Check it out for yourself at Amazon Novel Brutus. Read the awesome reviews, many of which compare it to Jaws. You've never read anything like this. Get it now on Ron's website, tnstud.com. Click Stud Store. It's only $19.99 for the book only or $29.99 for the personally autographed copy. Free shipping to whoever you wish. This is a once-in-a-lifetime Christmas gift that will be a keepsake forever. Order now, get it in less than two weeks. Bring Brutus home for Christmas. All right, StudCast fans, welcome back in. It's the second half of this StudCast, already off to a great start. Okay, Ron, so another mega card filled with great wrestlers. How did your brother put this TV show together to get as many guys on it as possible? How did he pull this off? Well, you know, it was the last week in November, uh, uh, the month-long rating period uh, for TV stations all across the country. Uh, you know, the Arbitron and the Nielsen book was uh, going on, and uh, that's how uh, everybody that owned these television stations uh, found out exactly how many people were watching their programs and which ones in particular they were watching. And uh, so it was a critical time for wrestling owners to boost their audiences with a great TV show. If they were ever going to do things special, they wanted to do it during these four grading book periods mm -hmm. every year. And uh, so, uh, so it was, uh, you know, it was really important, these television shows. And it's like you said, this one is packed. It's got so many great wrestlers on it, you know. Yeah. How are you going to get them all on there? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be curious because 
you put so much emphasis in in the right days at the right time on the Arbitron and Nielsen rating books in Knoxville with incredible figures like 80% of the entire market that were tuned into your show. So I'm going to be curious how it's going to, how that will transcend as you move into Southeastern down in Southeast Alabama and in the, the Florida and Alabama territories. All right. So I've counted the total number of wrestlers and managers on this week's card stud. So I believe there are 15, if I counted it right. So I'm going to try and keep up with just how many of these 15 are actually on the TV show. Oh, you're serious. You're going to see how many, <laughs> how many people, uh, how many wrestlers on this card are going to end up on this TV. So that's an interesting idea, Dave. I like that, you know. So uh, <laughs> obviously, the, you know, obviously the more faces that you can get in front of these fans sitting at home, the bigger the impact that uh, that it makes for your company. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and this show ended up with the new United States uh, junior heavyweight champion, Norvell Austin. You know, it opened up with Austin at the set with Charlie Platt. He had just won the U.S. junior title from uh, the great uh, Tony Charles. And, and at the end of last week's show, uh, Charlie announced that the United States junior title was going to be defended on this show. Well, Tony Charles was the champion when he announced that. Well, now Norvell Austin is the champion. So Norvell, you know, having just won the belt, uh, you know, he, he was he was like, wait a minute, you know, uh, <laughs> I just won the belt two days ago, and I'm going to have to defend it on TV today, right? <laughs> because that, that, what, that's not right, you know. <laughs> uh, so uh, Charlie says, hey, well, you know, that's what, uh, that's what we advertised last week. You are the champion, and you've got to f- fulfill your commitment. So... Charlie announced that uh, they would be showing exactly how Norvell Austin won the belt uh, in this show's personality profile was going to be with both uh, Norvell Austin and Jimmy Golden. So as Norvell left the set unhappily, you know, the studio exploded because here came Bob Armstrong. He appeared out of the dressing room, the studio dressing room, which was right there at the main dressing room. The doors, the dressing rooms were just off the, the main studio. So uh, he popped out of the studio. He's got his belt on. He's bandaged up, man, because uh, the the Thanksgiving night he and uh, he and Tanaka had a raw, brutal match, man. Both of them were really, really bloody. So uh, he's wearing his belt, but he's heavily bandaged, and he goes to the set with Charlie. So he and Charlie watched, uh, like I said, a brutal match on Thanksgiving night with almost ten thousand fans, nine thousand seven hundred fans. Uh, to watch uh, Bob and Tanaka, and uh, both of them end up bleeding badly, and both of them got disqualified. So this upcoming match between the two of them was a no-DQ match in which there had to be a winner, and the man that won is going to be the Southeastern champion, and the loser was going to be leaving Southeastern. So Bob was, you know, he was very forthcoming. You know, he said it, uh, you know, is he said it's this this is an extremely important match. You know, maybe it's as important as any as I've ever been in, he told Charlie, you know. He says, I, I'm not planning on leaving this part of the country, man. You know, so I don't care how bloody it gets. Uh, well, I'm not going to be the one with uh, that, that that doesn't have his hand raised. Wow. All right. So how about the first TV match? Who was on that one? Well, that was Bob's opponent, man, and uh, Tortanaka. <laughs> and when he came out of his dressing room, he's all bandaged up too, man. So, uh, you know, and Rob told me later, because I wasn't there, you know, Rob discussed this match with me and all the TV. And uh, he said, uh, Charlie asked Bob if he'd like to stay at the set with him and, you know, make some comments about, uh, you know, his his opponent here. And uh, Rob said, he, he said, Bob, he said, Bob declined. He, he said, uh, you know, he told Charlie, he said, I, he said, I'd love to, Charlie, but uh, but I'm not going to take any chances of getting hurt between now and this championship loser leaves match. You know, and he says the injury now might cause me to lose that extremely important match, you know, and he, he finished by saying, in fact, he goes, I'm not taking any chances. I'm leaving the station immediately. Right. And he got up from ah. the set and he, he left the building. So. <laughs> it was started off pretty, pretty, pretty different in that respect. 
I'm yeah, sure. I don't think I've ever heard a wrestler say that before, but it sure makes a lot of sense to me. But so, how did Tanaka do in the the matches that followed? Well, Rob said, match. you know, and I asked Rob that question. You know, I said, well, how did Tanaka do? You know, what was his his state of mind? And he said, he said he was just as focused as Bob. He said he attacked his opponent. He said he made quick work out of him and took no time nor chances of being hurt. He said, <laughs> it just took two or three minutes and uh, ended it, went back to the dressing room. He probably left the studio, too. Yeah, kind of an all-business attitude. Okay. All right, so who was up next? We had the big Canadian man, Joe LaDuke. And uh, remember the last TV show, uh, Dave, uh, Joe LaDuke was watching the TV championship match uh, with the Mongolian Stomper against the uh, – Stomper was wrestling against Kevin Sullivan for the television trophy. And then when the stomper won the match and then after the match was over, he attacked Sullivan again. And, uh, Jerry Stubbs, who was, uh, been Kevin's partner and, uh, you know, involved against the Mongolian team, Jerry went to the ring to get stomper off of him. And when that happened, the Mephisto and the other Mongolian were sitting with, uh, with, uh, uh Charlie at the set. And uh, wow, they just left the set and they joined the fray up there, man. And they were stomping the heck out of Sullivan and Jerry Stubbs. And uh, and Joe LaDuke was standing and watching that entire match. I think Charlie asked something about to Mephisto about, you know, why is LaDuke watching this? And Mephisto didn't even mention it, didn't even uh, didn't talk about it. But anyway, Joe LaDuke standing there watching. And when he went in the ring, they all left, the three of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were they had these guys down and uh, you know but obviously they had a lot of respect for Joe to do yeah I, I don't know if the fans were confused Ryan but I wasn't uh, I wasn't sure at this point if Joe LaDuke was a heel or a baby face yeah well you know and that's a good question and and I and I think that's because we didn't really want the fans to know for sure to be honest with you you know Joe LaDuke Looked like a heel. If I was a wrestler that ever did, Joe LaDuke looked like a heel, man. And when he came into southeastern Knoxville in 1976, the Mongolian Stomper was ruling the territory as a southeastern champion. Uh, and, you know, well, we desperately needed a monster babyface because, gosh, Stomper was a monster heel, you know. So we took a chance on Joe LaDuke. He had a, never been a babyface in his career before and we decided we want to make a baby face out of you joe and uh you know and, and we were hoping that we could get the fans to fall in love with him and uh <laughs> and, uh, and, and then, then uh support him man because we we're going to throw him in there with the stomper and wow we all just saw these matches in our head is wow this is going to light this territory up Are you kidding? it did <laughs> I mean, it lit it up. Uh, so, so uh, why not do it again, right? We got the same two guys. They've never been seen down there, uh, the Duke at all. Stomper, <laughs> just very little. So, why not give it another shot? Oh, uh, that is so cool. I mean, the stuff you're you're filling us in on today. So, all of you were banking on that same thing happening again, five hundred miles to the south. Now, the only difference is different fans, but fans are fans. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You know, and it worked in Knoxville. It's going to work in Mobile. It works in Mobile. It's going to work in New Orleans. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, fans <laughs> are fans. And, uh, you know, we just thought we got we got the guys, so we got the ideas. And we even had more than that, man. Uh, in fact, uh, you're right. It was quite a gamble. It was a gamble. By this time, you know, we... But this time, we had an ace in the hole, man. We had that remarkable blockbusted angle from Knoxville, the actual angle where they busted those blocks on their head, and Joe went to the hospital, and it down there broke his neck. And, you know, so uh, and uh, they'd never seen it. Nobody ever in the southeastern Gulf Coast down there had seen any of this. So, wow, this gamble was just beginning, man. So after fans got comfortable with him, you know, Joe LaDuke had a tremendous personality and rapport with, with all the fans. Fans loved him. It was crazy. You know, you look at him and you would be scared to death of him. But when people got to know him, 
they were crazy about Joe LaDuke. So Rob told me that Joe had been making a point every night since he got there. And this was about his second week to spend time out talking to the fans, hoping to let them know, you know, I'm a good guy. Uh, you know, I'm not a monster. And, you know, and then uh, and, he, and he even hinted to a few of them that, you know, I'm here for a reason, you know, and, 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 and y'all are going to find out uh, sooner or later what it's all about. But uh, I'm not here accidentally, basically. So on this TV, uh, Rob pushed it to another level. He helped him greatly to become more of a baby face in spite of the way he looked. So Rob had found this 300-pound-plus wrestler. You know, he was young. He didn't, need, he didn't know very much. But uh, Rob brought him in. Uh, he put a mask on. He called him the mauler, and he put him in the ring with Joe LaDuke in the second <laughs> TV match. Okay. He, he, he brings in, we imported a, a jobber that, uh, that was going to get it done. A big one. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so when the bell rang, you know, uh, Joe uh, turned his back and he was taking off his lumberjack suit, his shirt, his big lumberjack shirt. And, uh, this mauler attacked him from behind and, uh, and he beat Joe down. He beat him down pretty good until Rob said, until the crowd, he said the crowd was very quiet. And then finally he said the crowd started to kind of go, Joe, Joe, go, Joe, go, Joe. And uh, wow, Joe was a great worker, man. And he knew how to work a crowd. So uh, finally when he got this little thing going there, then he started this comeback. Rob said, wow, what a comeback he made on this guy. He said, Ron, he slammed this 300-pound guy. He said he went up on the top rope and he jumped off in his chest. And then he said he picked him up and put him in a bear hug. Guy's just hanging there in his bear hug. So he said, you know, for the first time, you know, since his arrival, he said fans were actually cheering, you know, when he left the ring. So, uh, Charlie was, uh, you know, motioning then to come to the set. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, uh, Joe saw it. And so Joe went to the set and Charlie congratulated him for the win. And he told him, you know, he says, uh, Joe, I, I need to apologize. He goes, I never really knew that much about you. And he goes, uh, you know, since you're out of Canada. And he says, uh, and today I went in the, in the control room earlier today and they had this video of you doing this, these feats of strength. You know, he goes, uh, uh, I'd never seen any, some of these things ever before. And he was, he said, I was blown away. He goes, uh, you know, uh, so Rob said, Joe just got a big, huge grin on his face, right? I mean, he, and then he asked Charlie, he says, uh, well, he says, would, would you let me do something next week on the TV show? And so Charlie said, of course, you know, uh, what would you like to do? So uh, Joe said, uh, he said, I'll tell you what, he goes, I, I want to put, I want to put, a, I put these straps around my arm, a strap around my arm that uh, attached to a rope. Mm -hmm. And he goes, uh, then I'm going to, we're going to get, get me 20 men. I put 10 men on one rope. I put a strap on my other arm, put 10 men on that rope. He goes, then I'm going to grip my hands together and I'm going to see if the if these 20 men can pull my hands apart. Are you kidding? Okay. <laughs> 20 men, 10, 20. On, 10 on each arm. Basically it's a tug of war with this guy's body in the middle, trying to pull his hands apart. Yeah, that's exactly what it was going to be. Wow. wow. Right, so, so that was the challenge. You know? And then, then, so, uh, on the next show, uh, in the personality profile segment, we're going to be outside the studio Doing a tug of war with twenty men, Joe the Duke holding his hands together, keeping them. They can't pull his hands apart. Because literally, you didn't have enough room in that studio, right? No, you couldn't do it in the studio. Yeah. You got too many, too many bodies. Yeah. So we're going to go outside the studio for the personality profile in the next show to have Joe do his first feat. Of I can't wait He's to hear. Do several of these. That is so cool. I can't wait to hear about that. All right, how about the, the on this TV's profile? Well, on this TV's profile was Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin. And Norvell had started the show, and he was having to defend his title. Uh, he knew he was having to defend his title on TV. He didn't know who. Did, he probably didn't care, right? You know, uh, 
So, and as Charlie had promised at the beginning of the show, Golden Lawson, uh, he, he said, uh, you know, I, I'm going to show the, how you won the championship. Told Norvell that in the opening of the show. Well, Norvell didn't want him to show it because Jimmy Golden helped him win it, right? So, so they're both on there, and Charlie knows what the situation's going to be. So they did everything they could to keep Charlie from running the video. No, 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 Charlie, you know, we, you know, uh, he's the champion. That's all you need to know. They were just back and forth with him. And, uh, and that, and then when fans saw the video, they knew why they were screaming. No, we don't want to we see it. We don't want to have it shown. So, uh, Tony Charles, uh, you know, uh, had uh, at the end of the match in this video, he had Norvell down and, uh, he was about to pin him. It was about over and Jimmy Golden arrived at the ring. And, uh, and with all things, of all things, uh, you know, Jimmy's, Jimmy had boxing gloves on and he's dancing around on the floor out there, right by, right below where Tony's standing and looking at him. Uh, Norvell's laying on the mat. He's a, he's a done, he's a done man. He's out. He's done. Finished. But Tony hasn't pinned him yet. And Tony's standing there looking at, at Jimmy Golden like, what in the heck is wrong with you? And uh, so, uh, you know. So obviously it took Tony's attention away from Austin. You know, Austin's laying there. So Golden then jumped up on the ring apron and he took a wild swing at Tony and uh, Tony backed off uh, just enough for the referee to have room to get between the two of them. And, uh, and the referee got in Jimmy Golden's face and he's telling him to get off the apron of the ring, get down. And that gave Austin a chance to get up on his feet. And he just shit. Tony's right there. He's standing behind the referee. He just jams Tony right straight into the referee, and uh, the referee busts heads with Jimmy. Jimmy goes off into the floor, and uh, Tony goes down, and the referee goes down, and then uh, Jimmy finally gets back up on the apron, and Norvell reaches in his tights, and he takes out something, and then puts it in Jimmy Golden's right glove, his boxing glove. And then he grabbed up Tony Charles, who's kind of getting to his feet, and he put him in a full nest, and then he pushed him over there to Jimmy and Jimmy, Jimmy let him have that right hand, man. And, and then, uh, you know, Jimmy left the ring. He, he left the whole ring area. He went to the dress room and, uh, Charles went down bow, you know, he didn't, I don't know what was in the glove. So, uh, then Austin covers in Tony Charles and the referee finally gets over there and he counts him out. And there's a new United States junior heavyweight champion. So studio audience they erupted in booze, man. They see how they won the how they won the belt, and uh, you know. And while they were doing that, what was amazing, Rob said, is Ron. He says that Mobile crowd was on that video, and he goes, he said, "Do you think that didn't drown out that studio?" He says, "Wow, that ten thousand people in the building." He said, "They didn't like it either, right?" So he said, "So he said at that point, he said." Jimmy said Jimmy jumped up from his profile chair. They had the big profile chairs and each one had a chair and Jimmy jumped out of his chair and he started dancing around Rob said and shadow boxing with the fans on the bleachers, which are just <laughs> right there by the set, right? <laughs> like, yeah, come on, y'all, right? So they're him and him and uh, Norvell, they're happy, right? I mean, we brought the belt here and uh, this is a cool deal. So Charlie said, you know, so, but Charlie knew what Jimmy Golden didn't know at this point. So, uh, so he, he says, uh, you know, he knew what kind of match Jimmy was going to be in the next week. Jimmy didn't know who he was even wrestling at that point. So Jimmy, uh, you know, Charlie said, may Jimmy sit down. And, uh, and then he said, you know, I, I have to let you know something, Jimmy, because uh, the Southeastern Commissioner, Don Curtis, uh, has seen this video, right? And he said, he told me to tell you, he says, uh, he says because a boxing glove was used to win a wrestling belt, and the way you guys did it, Jimmy, he says, uh, you're going to be wearing some boxing gloves next week. Uh, and you're going to have a 10 round boxing fight with your cousin, Robert. Ford. Well, the studio audience, they popped, man. They <laughs> loved that idea. And then Charlie turned to Norvell and he says, and I got some news for you, Norvell. He goes, you're going to be defending your newly won United States junior heavyweight belt in the last match on the TV today. He goes, your opponent's going to be Tony Charles. <laughs> 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 the profile ended with a big, huge pop, man. 
except Golden and Austin. They were in Charlie's face. They were mad and upset. Man, this is this didn't turn out to be what they thought. Wow. Another great profile. So who was in the next TV match? Well, the next, uh, the new Mongolian tag champions, man. Uh, they came out of the dressing room. They had their belts on. The Mongolian stomper was carrying his new Southeastern TV trophy uh, that he won the week before from, uh, you know, uh, and they had their manager, obviously, the great Mephisto with them, and they went into the ring. Wait, wait. They just... They just got into the ring, so there was no usual charge by the Mongolian stomper at the studio audience, and the audience freaks out. <laughs> That's what I asked Rob. I said, uh, did, "Did he do stomper do his thing?" And he, yeah. he said, "No." He goes, "He said he was so proud, Ron, of that huge trophy." He goes, "You know, he and he probably he figured out how am I going to manage to charge the crowd, and I got the trophy and I got the belt, and yeah. you know." So he said. He just got in the ring. And, you know, that was strange. It was a different way that he normally uh, handled TV matches. So he said the match wasn't a very long one, you know, and the stomper, he said, really, the stomper was the guy that stood out. And he was so much better than his son at this point, you know. And uh, so he said uh, the stomper really got the victory from for his kid. And he said, actually, he ended up stomping both of the guys that he was wrestling in the face. And then he said he covered one of them, and his son came in and covered the other. So uh, then Kevin Sullivan and Jerry Stubbs, uh, they got a big hand from the studio on it. They went to Charlie uh, to sit with Charlie after the match because they were in a Southeastern tag match uh, for the belts again. And they had wrestled the these guys, uh, the Mongolians, on Thanksgiving night. And that match had ended up in a disqualification of the Mongolians. Uh, Mephisto jumped in the ring and uh, to stop the rift and counting out his uh, stomper's son and uh, and they got his team disqualified, kept him from losing the belt. So uh, Sullivan and Stubbs were happy, man, to get another title shot. And then this time the match was going to be an ODQ clause in it, and uh, they expected they had a better chance of getting getting their belts back. Okay, so it must have been must have been time for the TV. United States junior heavyweight title match between the former champion, Tony Charles, and the new champion, Norvell Austin. Yeah. So, you know, we're like last match, and uh, that was what was uh, promised at the beginning of the show. And uh, so according to Rob, you know, it, they had a great match. Wow. Uh, Rob said they had a tremendous match, Charles and, uh, and Austin, but gosh, they probably every time they ever wrestled had a tremendous match. Both those guys could really wrestle. And uh, he said it was almost 20 minutes long. And then he said, uh, you know, at the end of it, Tony Charles was taking control, kind of like he had done uh, in Mobile six days earlier in the match. And uh, he said Tony was about to meet Norvell, beat Norvell, and uh, Golden showed up at ringside again, man, to distract him, you know, just as he did the night that, uh, you know, Norvell won the belt from him. So I asked Rob, uh, you know, I said, well, what happened? He said, well, he said, the boxing gloves were sitting on the test right there in the dressing room when I was watching the monitor. And he goes, uh, and he, he goes, I just grabbed the right-handed one. And he said, I put it on my hand. He said, I went to the ring. And he said, uh, Jimmy had his back turned and he was still mouthing and jawing off for Tony Charles. And he said, I tapped him on the shoulder. When he turned around, he said, I let him have it. <laughs> and, uh, so Charlie said, uh, the later he said, well, gosh, what a huge explosion in the studio that was, Ron. I mean, Rob, Rob knocked Golden out cold. And, uh, and then he said, Tony put Norvell into a one-legged crab, and he was about to make him give up. And uh, Norvell hit the referee on purpose to get disqualified to save his belt. And, uh, and Rob said, the end deal was, Ron, uh, they had to carry Jimmy Golden out of the studio. He was still out. Wow. So, so he said, then a new mass man, uh, end of the show. We're right at the very end of the show now. And, uh, you know, he, uh, Rob said a new mass man came to the set with Charlie. Uh, he told him, my name is the super pro. <laughs> and he said he was dressed exactly like the original pro, white trunks, white mask, you know. And he said the only thing, uh, you know, that he was here for, he, the mask guy, he said, uh, he said, you know, he called me the super pro, and he goes, the only thing I'm here for 
is I'm going to unmask the guy that ended my father's career <laughs> uh, right here in this territory. And, uh, and I, I'm going to, and when I do, he says, I'm going to become the one and only real pro. Oh, so went off the air like that. Okay. I'm telling you, that's a tremendous TV show. So I counted 13 out of the 15 wrestlers on the next live event as being on this show. So uh, truly amazing. So what happened in mobile four days later, Wednesday, November 28th, 1979. Well, this super pro, uh, he was on the card. Uh, he got a win. It was his first night in mobile. He, he beat Roy Lee Welch. And, uh, and when the match was over, the super pro was about to leave the ring. The real pro, the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter, the living legend, man, is what they call him down there in that part of the country. Mm -hmm. He was dressed to wrestle and he was waiting for it right outside the ring in his corner. <laughs> so he said, Rob said, he said, the crowd stood up right there's pro and there's this guy mouthing off about he's the super pro. And he said, uh, so he said the pro shot up in the ring and he said the super pro shot out on the floor and ran to the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's their first altercation, I guess. Right. Well, so uh, second match, Joe LaDuke obviously had no problem beating Troy, Troy Grant. And uh, we're going to change Joe's thing to make him even stronger at this point. Uh, after this match with a single guy, from now on, for a lot of matches, Joe LaDuke is going to wrestle a handicap. He's going to wrestle two guys at a time. So the, he beat Troy Graham very handily, but he's going to start wrestling two guys at a time. So in the next, in the 10-round boxing match, uh, Rob and Jimmy uh, had Jimmy down, man, uh, twice in the fifth round. They got into the fifth round. Rob said he knocked him down once, and then he uh, at the right at the end of the round, he said uh, uh, he knocked him down again, and uh, and the bell rang uh, the second time he was down to keep him from getting counted out. So he said that uh, Jimmy goes back, and they had chairs there, right? You know, so they could sit down like fighters do, but they didn't have water buckets, and they didn't have the seconds and all that stuff. But he goes, as soon as this uh, fifth round ended up and, uh, and Jimmy went back and sat down, he says, uh, here came Norvell Austin down the ringside. He had a bucket of water, right? And he set the bucket in Jimmy Golden's corner, and then he got on the ring as if he was going to, you know, uh, try to manage, get into the ring and go and sit and manage Jimmy in the corner. And, and the referees uh, saying, no, 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 and Rob sends attention's over there. Nobody's paying much attention to Jimmy while all this is going on. So while the referee and Rob's attention is on Norvell, Jimmy's over there. He stuffed his right-hand glove down in that bucket of water. <laughs> so Rob said when the bell rang for the next round, he goes, uh, Norvell just walked by and he took the bucket and he, you know, and, then, and he got, he went to, toward Rob like he was going to throw the water on him. And, uh, you know, the bell had rang. So, uh, Rob, instead of seeing, paying attention to where Jimmy was and what was going on, Jimmy had that water-soaked glove, and he just, Rob said, he, he knocked me out. <laughs> he nailed me wow. big time, right? I did. Wow. Because I, I got counted out. Jimmy won the match. <laughs> so he won the boxing match. So in the United States Junior Heavyweight title match, Norvell Austin against Tony Charles. Norvell got intentionally disqualified again to save his belt. Uh, nobody's going to beat Tony Charles very often, I can tell you that. So, no, he didn't have any choice. And then uh, in the no disqualification the South for the South Eastern Tag Championship, uh, uh, Kevin Sullivan uh, lost uh, because he wasn't able to kick out of a pin because he was real close to the ropes. And, uh, and normally he would have easily been able to kick out of a pin and the referee was head was up at the, up where Kevin was and wasn't paying attention. And the great Mephisto uh, reached in there and put his whole body on uh, both of Kevin's legs. So it kept him from kicking out of the pin and he got beat right there easily in the corner of the ring, right behind the ref's back. So Southeastern tag title was a no DQ. Uh, there had to be a winner. And the loser was going to leave Southeastern, and uh, and the winner was Bob Armstrong. 
So how about the attendance? All three of those major markets for this card, how'd you do? Well, bear in mind that, you know, last week in the last studcast, we talked about how difficult the time frame it was between Thanksgiving and Christmas being the most difficult uh, three weeks or four weeks of the entire year for wrestling fans. And uh, because there was so much going on and that Christmas and all that. And so, so this was the first of those four weeks during that time frame. Uh, Montgomery dropped from 4,100 uh, the week before to 3,000. Uh, Dothan dropped from 5,300 to 42. And Mobile went from 9,700 because they were in the big building to uh, 4,500 uh, in Expo Hall. So, uh, you know, um, uh, that sounds like an awful lot. But but believe me, man, this time of year was tough for everybody in the mm. wrestling businesses all mm. around the and others, other events as well, people's thoughts and, you know, they're interested in something else and they spend their money on, uh, on Christmas. So, so to compare these crowds to others, you know, uh, I wanted to kind of get an idea, you know, I thought, well, it's a bigger drop than I really expected was going to happen. Mm. So I got in touch with Bob Pope, who was Jim Barnett's front guy in Knoxville there. And, and I asked Bob, I said, what did you? Did uh, you draw there in the Coliseum on Friday night? Same night as Dothan's night, for instance. And he said, uh, we drew uh, 2,200. You know, and uh, so that was 800 people less than Montgomery. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh, 2,000 people less than Dothan. And, uh, you know, uh, so, and it was less than half of what Mobile's crowd was. Right. So this three-city total uh, was Still 12,000. It was way down from 19,000 the week before. But when you've got that big auditorium and you've got that ability to put all those thousands in that at one building, that makes a big difference in your week. So actually, when I started looking at it, uh, it wasn't bad. And, uh, you know, it was probably similar to uh, the Florida Territory in that same week. And, geez, you know, all the big cities in Florida. So, uh, you know, uh it was a. It went down, but uh, it was still uh, really good compared to most places in the country. Hey, I got to tell you, this has been another outstanding studcast, and we are going to get it. Can you believe it? Here comes a learning tree question on this episode. All right. So the question comes from, and I hope I say his last name right, Wayne Canapy or Canopy in Atlanta, Georgia. Forgive me, Wayne, if I if I butchered that. All right. So Wayne says. What were your expectations for Knoxville after you sold and left as far as what the new owners would be able to do there? What did you think? And I'm paraphrasing. What What did you think Jim Barnett, what kind of success, success was he going to have? That's a, that's a very good question, Wayne. <laughs> you know, uh, and, 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 and especially since you're a Georgia boy or a Georgia, a Georgia man, I don't know how, how old you are, but, uh, you know, you're from Georgia, right? And that's where the two buyers of the Knoxville territory happen to be operating at. So, uh, so gosh, I, I kind of want to focus on just one of these two buyers. I, I want to focus this on Jim Barnett, you know, and, uh, and uh, Jim Barnett was one of the most respected wrestling owners and promoters in the history of the sport. Undoubtedly, his accomplishments in the business were absolutely legendary, you know, and he had been actively in the business since the 1930s. And he had run at one time or another many of the major cities in America, Chicago and Los Angeles and and uh, big, huge cities. And almost all of them, had, he'd been extremely successful. Uh, and, and his history since arriving in Atlanta which was around 1974, had been very impressive, man. Uh, and he and I had a really good relationship. Uh, and I really, really liked Jim Barnett. Uh, uh, I respected him, and, uh, and and I worked for him in Australia in 1973. So, you know, uh, and I had witnessed, obviously, how he did business. And, and because of that, uh, you know, uh, I felt like he, he and his partner, Fred Ward, who owned uh, the, basically the southern part of Georgia, uh, they were going to be extremely successful, I, I expected, in Knoxville, or they, they should have been. 
So uh, my main questions about their potential success, though, came from the fact that they had active opposition in their main market, which was Knoxville. And uh, and that opposition was from the five wrestlers that had uh, that broke away from me and uh, and all five of them. Every all five of those wrestlers had been top stars at one time or another in Knoxville. And uh, they had sadly all become a. Uh, renegades baby and you know i guess that's a good word word for it uh, yep. about totally out of control with the way they ran their company you know uh and and barnett had not dealt with that aspect of competition when he went to atlanta there was a war going on but he bought out both sides and when he did that uh, he didn't have any competition you know he wasn't going to have to deal with competition but uh knoxville you know, the competition was still there. Those guys were still there. And those guys were focused, man, on winning the war. And 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 they and worse still, if they didn't win the war, they were totally going to destroy wrestling in Knoxville. That was their thought process. If we can't own it, we're gonna kill it. You know, and, and I figured, you know, that that uh you know that that that, that that uh, Barnett might underestimate their intentions, mm. you know, and it and, and it was really hard, uh, you know, as a wrestling businessman to understand that kind of mentality. Yep. Who thinks like that, right? So, yep. uh, and and I also believe that the new owners had no idea how big so many of the top wrestlers that had come through that territory had become while they were there. You know, they, the Barnett and uh, and Fred Ward. Knew very little about what we were doing in Southeastern, you know. So, uh, so, and I often told my partners uh, from time to time during this years uh, after it, I saw that I ultimately believed that uh, no one was going to be able to actually save Knoxville and make it successful again, other than maybe us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, because we had been there, you know, for a lot of reasons. So, so uh, you know, Wayne, if you look at the wrestlers on the Gulf Coast, in this episode alone, they were all stars there. The guys that were wrestling in this stud gas were all stars there at one time or another. And even more important, uh, they had become unforgettable to Knoxville fans. You had Bob Armstrong. You had Joe Duke, You had the Mongolian Stomper. You had Tor Tanaka. You had Tony Charles. You had Jimmy Golden. Norvell Austin. Kevin Sullivan, myself and my brother. I mean, this goes on and on. All these guys were in this stud cast. They used to be in Knoxville when it was roaring. Yep. And business was unbelievable. So uh, I truly I truly wish the buyers, uh, both, both Barnett and Fred Ward, uh, the best of luck. Uh, the last thing I wanted to see was a great wrestling city like Knoxville shut its doors on the sport. Right. So, so, but you know, if if wrestling every ever completely died there, I really felt like that we could return and bring and maybe bring it back to life. So, uh, great question, Mister Can- Canopy, or I, I'm like I'm like you, Dave. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, yeah. but that's a very good question, and I thank you for it. Listen, I appreciate that answer too because you you built that territory, you nurtured it. You watched it grow. You took a tremendous amount of pride in it. So to me, that's a great answer to the question, Stud. As you didn't just let the screen door slam on your way out. So I, th- I think that's pretty cool how you saw this thing move to another owner. And you were very careful about that. The strange part about this is it's, it's pretty much exactly what happened after you had been gone for six long years. I think you knocked, in this case today, I think you definitely knocked another one out of the park. So I really like the inside info. I think that is so cool how you how you deep dive into some of that for us on the discussion, that you, especially that you had with your partners and about where Southeastern Gulf Coast was going to be headed and the details of that exciting TV show today. That was a lot of fun. And then you guys getting together to say, let's buy homes. 
I mean, you're really serious about this thing. So, man, that's a lot of fun. All right, Stud. So where are we riding on the next Studcast? Well, I, I was finishing up, man, pretty much everything in Knoxville at that point and uh, leaving basically about the next 10 days after this Studcast, uh, 1979. And, uh, and I was spending some time with friends. I made a lot of friends there and reminiscing about the, the good times, which there were, gosh, uh, an awesome amount of them. Uh, so, uh, and then down south, uh, next week, we're going to be looking at, at another wrestler who's going to be leaving in the loser leaves match. And another all-time favorite is going to be coming back on the scene there. Uh, Joe LaDuke is going to start amazing the Gulf Coast fans, man, with a couple of feats of strength that fans are going to talk about for time, a long, long time, man. Uh, it's amazing what he was capable of doing. He's one of the – he was an unbelievably strong person. Uh, Bob Armstrong is going to find himself getting getting rid of one monster. He got rid of one this, this, this stud cast, but – He's got another one that's going to be on the, on the horizon and going to be looking at him the next week. So, and Rob's going to be battling uh, both Jimmy Golden and Norville Austin, and they're going to double team him again. But there's help for him on the horizon too. So, uh, and, uh, and I think our learning tree uh, question uh, are back, Dave. I think we're going to have time for a lot of them, hopefully, from here on. And I look forward, as always, to answering all of them. And I think they add so much to the studcast. Hey, folks, you know the deal. Find Ron on Facebook at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Like and follow him there. Automatically become friends with a living legend. Same thing on Twitter or X. Find him at Ron Fuller Welch. Same thing. And follow him there, too. Check out the fantastic website. It's tnstud.com. T-N as in Tennessee. tnstud.com. This studcast is going to be there with every studcast ever done. Shop the stud store where you get 43 super stud cast, four different 8x10 photos, the thrilling lion novel Brutus, personally autographed to you if you so wish, and t-shirts on special, on sale now for Christmas, only $15.99. Plus, subscribe now. Subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind. Get the best in old school wrestling. Find 364 videos, the last 103 stud casts, 52 stud stories, 83 short rides with the stud, and now 11 full Ask the Stud question and answer shows that are always so much fun. Number 11 has already set a new record and one of Ron's favorite exclusive, exclusively on YouTube Southeastern Rewind. It is the best deal in old school school wrestling, no doubt about it. All right, any other comments today, Rod? Well, I want to wish everyone, obviously, a very happy Thanksgiving. And uh, this is a time of year to begin to think of others that are less fortunate than we are. And please be careful uh, as we travel, and may God bless us all. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Stud, for Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. I'm David Summers saying thanks for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.